Now, scraping it, it out of the bowl now, getting it all together. And I can even tell by just when my knuckles touch it that it is it's a gorgeous stove. It's just perfect. Look at that, it just almost pours. Even got a bubble there, look. Oh, quite fine with this. Welcome to Serial from Farmerama. This is episode five. The best thing since sliced bread is unsliced bread. We're just going to give it a wee tap to see if it's done. Are you ready? Hear that? So that's a good sound. That's a great sound. Chris McCormack, a Glasgow-based home baker. What is bread for? You know, uh, who is it for? I mean, basically, bread itself is, is one of the most staple diets that you could ever have. Bread is for people and it's bread is for the masses. We mustn't forget that. At the start of this series, we posed a question. How did bread get so complicated? How was it transformed from a nourishing staple into a nutritionally impoverished imitation of itself? one that increasingly seems to be making people ill. Well, bread is made from flour, which is milled from grains, which are grown from seeds sown in soil. Over the last four episodes, we've explored the causes and the consequences of bread's transformation at each link in that chain, from seed to field to flour. And as we've heard, there was a logic behind each change. It's just that, for the most part, that logic serves technology, industry, and shareholders, rather than consumers, producers, or the environment. In this episode, we'll explore the next link in the chain by stepping into the bakery. We'll be meeting bakers who are proving, pun fully intended, that a different bread system is possible. They're restoring this age-old staple to its place at the centre of our tables and our communities. Here's a snapshot of just a few of them. So my name is Theo Lafargue. I started making my own sourdough bread at home out of pure curiosity and, and it turned into a bit of a hobby until the time in 2014 where I got involved with a couple of other people and we started a very small community bakery in Stirling in Scotland called Riverside Bakery. We started baking from our flat, and so from that we ended up needing a bigger kitchen very, very soon. I bake now at the moment in a community centre kitchen. I make bread by hand and try and work doughs as slowly as possible. I deliver it by bike. I've been doing so since the beginning, partly for cost reasons, but also because I believe that it's a very interesting experiment in trying out different production models. The idea of not using mixers, the idea of reducing our carbon footprint, the idea of using organic ingredients, local ingredients, short supply chains with little fossil fuel input. This is very much at the kind of heart of, of what I'd like to, to do. And deliveries by bike also promote that kind of ethos and allows the bakery to stay relatively small for, for a business that produces that much bread. I'm Ben McKinnon from E5 Bakehouse. E5 Bakehouse is a bakery. We've got 
two sort of front of house cafes and a coffee roastery cafe. So we're making organic sourdough bread, which we supply for wholesale by bike in East London, and also obviously as retail in the, the cafes and shops. And the philosophy from when I started the bakery 10 years ago has always been that the environment, sustainability are sort of the the framework that we exist in. So trying to be as responsible and work within that as much as possible. And over this decade, that has evolved from using renewable energy and delivering our bread locally, being part of a local community and using organic to extending much more into what the sort of most ethical way of growing wheat is in this sort of developing understanding of of what sort of often called ecological agricultural farming is. I'm Katrina Milligan. I'm a project worker at Bridging the Gap and part of my job is the privilege of running High Rise Bakers. So High Rise Bakers is a group of local people and about half of the bakers are from a refugee background. Some people are local and a refugee background and we come together twice a week to bake really delicious, nutritious bread for our neighbours. We sell it in the community um, and other baked goods as well. So it was started as a, a way of bringing people in who live at the margins. It's something that, that builds community and builds relationships, but it's also something that's purposeful to do. So for quite a lot of the people who come, they're not able to hold down paid employment, maybe because of health reasons or because of home office regulations. So it gives something meaningful to do that, that serves their community and, and enhances life around here. Well, my name is Rupert Dunn. is Welsh for Loaf of the Land, and as a project, we're a community-supported peasant bakery. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but what I mean by that is the peasant bakery is from the French paysan boulanger model. So if you're a paysan boulanger, it means you're a farmer and a baker and a miller. And the bread is always baked in a wood-fired oven, and it's uh, generally most peasant bakers are making that bread by hand in a dough trough. We call ourselves a community-supported peasant bakery because we're community owned. The idea is to really to support education, support people to learn and reconnect with the way the bread is produced and uh, the way the wheat is grown and the varieties and the milling. We teach yeah, school groups, for instance, but also to look at models where we can share the risk between the producer and the and the bread eater or the consumer as well. So it's a tapestry that's, you know, that has lots of elements to it that takes time to, to come together. My name's Kimberly Bell. I started Small Food Bakery five years ago and I am a baker and also I consider myself an advocate for the localisation of food systems and I guess in some contexts I would say act as an activist for that cause. The bakery is very much an expression of my politics and it started really very much as an experiment to see what a local food system might look like and for me to have a toolkit where I could apply ideas and I, you know, I treated it like a workshop. Essentially now it's become a fully functioning business system around the production of food, but it's allowed me to really explore the reality of my politics and thoughts and put it into practice and also demonstrate it to other people, rightly or wrongly. We'll also be releasing some bonus episodes profiling these bakeries in more detail, so look out for those. The bakeries we've just heard from are working in a range of contexts at a range of scales. 
but they share a lot of ideas and a lot of motivations. One thing they have in common is that they're committed to making bread that's tasty and nutritious. But that's not all. They're also committed to changing how we value bread and food in general. And that means changing how we value people, the people who produce that food and the people who eat it. Bread making maybe has a, has a very big part to play in imagining, demonstrating and encouraging, you know, this, this, this shift that's, that's very much needed in the production of food in general, because also of its symbolic. It's very important for us culturally. It's interesting to think that even though the bread-making practices have changed a lot in the last 50, 100 years, it's become much more industrialized with a lot of chemicals in it. People's association with bread has remained very strong and very poetic in a way. All sorts of expressions in the common language show us that bread is still occupying this really important place and we still value it. But there's a paradox because our production system doesn't. In episode one, we got a bit of an idea of the state of baking today, and in particular, the revolutionary impact of the Chorleywood bread process. Chorleywood transformed bread by introducing large quantities of yeast, chemical additives and fat, as well as high-speed mechanical mixing of the dough. All of that allowed the fermentation time to be cut to a minimum. The overall result was that bread could be made much, much faster, more cheaply and with far less human input. This is despite the fact that a longer fermentation makes bread more digestible and unlocks nutrients in the flour. Today, around 80% of bread eaten in the UK is produced using the Chorleywood process. There's an article on the BBC News website titled Chorleywood, the bread that changed Britain. It quotes a representative of the British Federation of Bakers. Of the Chorleywood process, he says, it's a process we invented and we should be very proud of it. UK bread, he points out, is around the cheapest in the world. The UK is the world's fifth largest economy. So what does that say about the value we place on our staple foods, on food in general, on the people who produce it and on those who eat it? Is having the cheapest bread in the world really something to be proud of? Or does this apparent achievement obscure some pretty fundamental problems? That same article highlights another statistic. Almost a third of the bread bought in Britain, 680,000 tonnes a year, is thrown away. The industrial bread system relies on smoke and mirrors. It claims to be highly efficient, but only by using a definition of efficiency that ignores a host of costs, environmental, health-related and social. It externalises those costs, imposing them instead on other people, other systems. The industrial bread system insists that we, as consumers, have more choice, more power than we've ever had. Except that, on the whole, that power is limited to choosing which Chorleywood loaf to pick off the supermarket shelf. The industry maintains these illusions of efficiency and choice by putting barriers, practical, psychological and cultural, between us and the people who grow and prepare our food. And it even puts barriers between those people and the food they're responsible for. As we've heard, it turns farmers into commodity producers and bakers into technicians. So what might it look like to base a system on different values, on transparent communication and direct relationships, 
a system that prioritizes everyone's nourishment and physical and economic well-being, rather than generating profits for a select few. It's really easy to build a system in society based on misinformation. The clearest lines of communication are always the most effective. So I'll give a practical example of how this plays out in the bakery in the day-to-day. -day. There is a lot of discussion in the bakery about gluten intolerance. And many people come to us because they're just dissatisfied with the products that they can buy through more conventional food retail. They don't really know what the problem is, or they just have this sense that they perhaps need to find a bit more information. And I think one of the things we're able to do is provide them that information straight away. We're not selling them a solution to a gluten intolerance. We haven't got a product that's been packaged aimed at that market. What we have is people standing behind a counter who make bread and understand the science of bread. They understand dough, they understand gluten formation, and they can explain it clearly. It's not a medical leaflet, it's person to person, and we're able to deal with the nuance of that because there is no line to be drawn there. Some people can tolerate more things than others, and just having a gentle discussion, I just think it's much, it allays anxiety and it allows people to still feel like they've got some options and that maybe they could try some stuff instead of just banning themselves from eating bread for life, possibly based on, you know, the current status quo and not based on an ideal system or a better system. But again, it's the opportunity for feedback as well. It's not just a one-way thing. Like, you know, it's really important that when our customers have a problem with one of our products, that they're able to communicate that to us put people together, allow them to exchange ideas, allow them to converse, and almost force them to converse. I think that's, that's what this kitchen does. It's a full-serve shop, essentially. So you can't really come in here and just put some stuff in a basket and then self-checkout. You actually have to at least speak to one of us. But yeah, it's just about breaking down barriers. I mean, you can see from this kitchen here, there are no barriers. It's totally intentional and I hope that we manage to make people feel comfortable in this environment when they come in and to make them feel welcome because it's their bakery, ultimately. Industrial bread, industrial food, disenfranchises everyone involved. The producers, the processors and the eaters. It undermines their autonomy and their ability to interact and collaborate. The alternative is about enfranchising people enabling them to have agency in the system and to connect with the other links in the chain. If you're trying to instigate change or <laughs> even just build resilience, I think one of the most important things is that the stakeholders in the system feel empowered. It's not okay for it just to be me that sees the value in something. Like Everybody involved in it has to see it do. So if we just go back a step to price of bread and the fact that this staple food that's so important to us has been devalued. We have to then look at how do we convince people that there's value in it again. And I think it's about changing people's intention or intent towards the way that they interact with bread and whether that's just because they're a, someone who buys bread or whether they're someone who makes bread or somebody that grows the grain for the bread. This idea of intention has become really important to me. Um, so for me the importance of getting bakers back to farms is about reconnecting them with where they sit in society and understanding that what they do in the bakery actually has an impact on what happens on farms. So if we want to build industrial mega bakeries that are producing bread using the Chorleywood process, then that ultimately will dictate the kind of farming that we have. However, 
it's kind of almost impossible to know that unless you actually go and see it for yourself, you have to feel it. Because you can feel really insignificant and even if you've got the sense of anxiety about the state of play or a sense that you want to work towards making it better, it's really overwhelming the idea that you can make a difference. But I think all of that can be overcome just by allowing people to spend time together, allowing the connections and creating really meaningful feedback loops. I think it's really important for a farmer to know a baker, for them to see how bread is made. It's really important for a baker to know a farmer and to see the pressures that they're under in their work. Because by doing that, you really get many minds around the same problem, lots of feedback, lots of discussion. And we get some really like, positive problem solving done in that way. Allowing people in different parts of the system to interact can also make the value of everyone's work much clearer. I think also just having those relationships person to person sets your intention. And when we get flour into the bakery, we've stopped seeing it as being something faceless or kind of just a dry good or something that's just a commodity. And we know the story behind it, we know the people behind it. So you don't spill it on the floor and sweep it up. You don't waste the bread that you've made with it, you, you cherish it. And also you want to work to make that farmer proud. You realise where you sit in the system, so because you've got that relationship with the farm, we've got the final job really of not ruining it. <laughs> so if it's made it through all of the many complex stages to get from being a seed through to being something that can be milled as flour, then I suppose we, we see ourselves then as custodians of many other people's labours. It makes you think deeply about it, but it also can give you a lot of pleasure because it makes you realise that you've got some significance or importance in the network. It's a hard job what we do. It can be stressful. It can be physically very demanding. It doesn't always go according to plan and therefore can also sometimes make you feel a bit sad. But when you know who you're baking for and you know the people, you even know them by name, you know their families, it just makes it spurs you on it. You, you know, it sets your intentions and gives you the motivation to keep going. And likewise, if you know, we've got a relationship with a farm, if an ingredient comes in and, and suddenly one of our products is not working right, it's technically got some kind of issue, it'd be really easy for us to just feel really bad about that. But because we can ring them and find out what's going on and then we suddenly find there might be some natural or weather phenomenon involved in what's going on, you can sort of deal with the trauma of it being a bit hard. I think what Kim's talking about here could also be described as food sovereignty. In contrast to the dominant idea of food security, food sovereignty holds that it's not enough for people to simply have access to food, regardless of what it is or where it's from or how it's been grown and distributed or who's benefited from its production. Instead, food sovereignty is about people's right to define their own food and agriculture systems. The term was coined and developed in the Global South by a farmers' network called La Via Campesina. Their definition of food sovereignty, quote, asserts that the people who produce, distribute and consume food should control the mechanisms and policies of food production and distribution rather than the corporations and market institutions that have come to dominate the global food system. In the context of the bread system, reclaiming food sovereignty could start with a decision as apparently simple as choosing to make a particular kind of bread, like sourdough. Sourdough baking harnesses wild yeasts and lactic acid bacteria, which are naturally present around us and in flour. 
By contrast, industrial baking relies on large amounts of baker's yeast, a genetically uniform strain that's produced and sold commercially. It might sound a bit grand, but for bakers like Kim, choosing to make sourdough isn't just about health or flavour or some kind of artisan aesthetic. It's political. I went to a lecture by Andrew Whitley. He did a lecture called The Power of Sour. And he talked a lot about the politics of sourdough and the idea that bread should really belong to people and that this leavening culture was an important part of kind of self-empowerment, the ability to make your own bread without buying into a commodity system was an amazing sort of metaphor for the problem with the bigger system. And so I didn't really know much about it, but I just thought, yeah, that's a good place to start. I knew that I wanted to create a food system that didn't engage with commodity in any way. So it just made total sense to me that I should also not buy commodity yeast. I think since then I've thought about it a lot more deeply and I've come to believe in it more strongly for all sorts of reasons, and there are health reasons. There are all kinds of complex reasons to shun the industry of yeast-making. But for me it was just a really good line to draw in the sand. I wanted to be autonomous and quite self-sufficient and it just seemed to fit with those ideals. Autonomy, self-sufficiency, independence from commodity markets. Food sovereignty also means moving away from the upside-down, tail-wagging-the-dog situation we're in at the moment. Under the current industrial bread system, the requirements of technology for uniform, predictable ingredients... Those requirements determine conditions for people right along the production chain, down to the plant breeding stage. As a result, wheat is bred for yield, rather than for nutritional density, environmental resilience or flavour. At the milling stage, arbitrary standards for factors like protein or amylase levels are used to control the price paid to farmers. And if grain still needs to be standardised before it reaches the bakery... Additives from synthetic sources are used to even out any differences. At every stage, the end, cheap, repeatable, industrial bread, is used to justify the means. Bakers like Kim and the small food team approach their ingredients from a different angle. They don't start by asking, what products do I want to make and what ingredients do I need to do that? Instead, the question is, what ingredients can I source based on the principles I want to promote, social, environmental, health-related, cultural, and what do those ingredients lend themselves to making? In the case of small food, a key example of this approach is the bakery's relationship with the YQ wheat population and the man behind it, Professor Martin Wolfe. Kim was introduced to Martin and to his farm, Wakelands Agroforestry, when she was searching for sustainably grown wheat. Yeah, we were expecting to be fairly insignificant, I think, and just be another sort of slightly starstruck visitor to go and learn about agroforestry. But what we learned was that he was very impassioned about this wheat breeding project that he had started to make a population wheat, and that he was actively looking for bakers to help promote it and work with it. We ended up being so impressed by... Wakelands by Martin, by the idea of a population wheat that we took up the mantle really and became ambassadors for that crop. 
by starting with the ingredients, rather than with a fixed vision of a finished product, bakers have the power to not only cater to their communities, but also to educate, inform and inspire them. They have the power to present new possibilities and to help us, the consumers, understand our place in the food system in a way that industrial food doesn't encourage or even allow us to. That's part of food sovereignty too. So, Kim baked her first batch of YQ bread and served it at an event. I thought it was pretty terrible and everyone got super excited about it and we realised that this wasn't a narrative that people were divorced from, they did get it. When you started talking about monocultures and farm systems and cropping and diversity, they really didn't need to understand it fully but they really engaged with it and it was quite exciting. So what that meant in reality was that we had to first of all figure out how to bake a viable loaf of bread with it. In both a practical and a philosophical sense, this ingredients first approach is the opposite of industrial food. And so it also means amending our idea of what an efficient system looks like. With this approach, efficiency doesn't come from building a rigid system which dictates its requirements to everyone else, which has little capacity for change, and which therefore responds to variability by generating waste. It doesn't come from ever greater standardisation and automation. That project is all about a kind of efficiency which is being bought at too high a price in environmental impact, but also in the de-skilling of the people that are actually doing it. Andrew Whitley, co-founder of the Real Bread campaign and Scotland the Bread. It's simply downgrading all the jobs that become machine-watching and minding jobs, insofar as there are any, or humping stuff from one place to another which isn't yet being done by robots. Those skills which millions of illiterate and innumerate people exercised every day of making bread with their own hands, using a natural fermentation where they were working to the tempo of the microorganisms which are our, not just our aids in this process, which actually perform the process for us if we're humble enough to see that that's what's going on. Instead, for real bread bakers, efficiency comes from responsiveness and adaptability and that means having people working directly with ingredients, with the process of fermentation and with each other. There's a real intuition for fermentation and how long things take. And, and I think it's just a really physical knowledge. It's very sensory. And by intuition, I mean a kind of real environmental awareness. So I'm not just like reading temperatures off a chart or whatever, but actually just being very awake to what's happening in terms of the changing seasons. And I know this room so well because I've rattled around in it for so long. I've had some pretty weird experiences in terms of fermentation. There's been times where I've forgotten to turn the heater off in the prever or I've not turned it on and I've literally gone to bed and woken up two hours later and I've just had to drive back to the bakery and fix it and I've always been right. It's very absorbing and it really does become, yeah, a little bit subconscious in terms of resilience, in terms of moving forward, a lot of the rigidity around science. If the science is taught without also teaching the philosophy of science, then you could be too blinkered in sticking to it. And that's another potential barrier. It's another potential barrier for change. I think a lot of bakers experience this, but it's a profession or a craft that actually teaches you to reconnect with your own senses. We really rely on those as tools 
And I think it's really important to maintain a system that always respects people's own autonomy in terms of their senses. And you see that playing out here in the kitchen with how much we share and taste things and constantly talk about the sort of sensory experiences that we're having and share that with each other. But there's a sense of independence as well when you're able to rely on your skills, on your hands and on the very basic ingredients that you can find locally. There's a sense of cultural identity as well in, in, a, in a very positive sense that you have when, when you make bread in, in a very simple way or any food in a very simple way. And of course it's going to be very different. It's going to taste very different, it's going to feel very different. The process, and that's very important, the process is going to be, look very different. But it's important to stress that. It's not just about the final product and what it looks like and how much time it takes to make it. It's, it's about the culture behind and it's about you know, the dignity of people making what we eat. A better bread system, a truly efficient bread system, a bread system built on the principles of food sovereignty, that bread system has to account for the dignity and the quality of life of the people making what we eat. But does that inevitably mean that, as consumers, we have to pay a higher price for those products? The fact is, I can walk into a supermarket and buy a loaf of bread for 60 or 70p. Or I can walk into an artisan bakery and pay £3 or £4 or more. In all the conversations I've had with bakers, I fumbled my way through some version of the same question. What about the perception that real bread, artisan bread, and especially sourdough, is some kind of elitist fad? A hipster trend in the same bracket as flat whites and avocado toast. In short, overpriced, exclusive, and simply out of reach to most people. Let's start by getting one thing clear. You often face this view that local food small-scale production is this kind of money-making scam that profits you highly because you sell things at a higher price than what you find in a supermarket. Price is used very much as a focal point. Now I can tell you, in my case for sure, and in the case of probably you know, most local food producers, that the profit margins aren't as high as what a supermarket will make. This is very much an industry that that relies on, on people's drive and people's passion about the product or about the cause that they serve. Or, so an accusation like that I will find a little bit unfair. None of the bakers I've met have set out to make expensive bread. They've set out to make good bread using traceable, nutrient-dense, sustainably grown ingredients. And unlike supermarkets and industrial bread manufacturers, they're not generating profits for shareholders. The money they do make is supporting their communities, their staff and their suppliers. So let's try reframing the question. Instead of asking, why is real bread so expensive? Let's ask, how can industrial bread be sold so cheaply? There's no denying that because of this question of externalities of costs not really being charged in the industrial loaf compared to the artisan loaf, that there's a perception of price difference. And Sadly, many consumer programmes on, on the media tend to, to simply point to this difference in a rather divisive way, rather than bringing out the reasons behind them, which would enable people to say, oh, yeah, I get it. It is better, providing it meets the standards of the Real Bread campaign. It is, and we are utterly evidence-based. You know, we're not just saying it's better because we want to live in an artisan 
red bubble. We're saying it's better because the evidence is piling up. A cheap industrial loaf is never truly cheap. That low price masks its true cost by displacing it onto our personal health, onto the health service and our tax bills, onto the environment, onto farmers, onto the people making and distributing the bread, often on low wages and precarious contracts. And there's another very important question to ask. What does it say about our society that we expect people on lower incomes to eat bread with virtually no nutritional value, bread that might in fact be making them ill? By focusing solely on price, by suggesting that that's the only relevant factor in this discussion, aren't we doing a serious disservice to precisely those people most in need of nourishing staple foods? What about their health and their dignity? And if, as a society, we have got to a point where nutritious bread is a luxury product, if those decent staples have become unaffordable to ordinary people, then surely that means there are some pretty basic problems to be addressed. It does seem to me that increasingly the, the proposition of the, the large multiple retailers is if you don't have enough money, you have to eat the worst quality food because there's no way they can really improve the quality without charging a higher price. You don't get something for nothing. And what they've failed to do is to reveal the extent to which the low price is bought at the, at the cost of personal health and environmental health, because they're not really footprinting the, their cheap, convenient food. You know, they're not saying this is cheap and we have factored in all the external costs of, of getting it to you at this price. So it's not the obligation, it seems to me, of the Real Bread campaign to deal with gross income inequality. You can't address this by somehow expecting artisan bakers to make a much better loaf and get it to people at a price which compares with a loaf which has been made with no such considerations of human health or environmental responsibility. So rather than fobbing off low-income consumers with the lowest quality loaves, maybe we should be asking how we can move to a situation in which everyone has access to good bread. How can we make that good bread more attractive, more approachable and more accessible to more people? There are two questions there. Is there any problem about creating something which highlights the differences between one system and another in a very specific way? And the other is, how can we get to accessibility? I would say that the answer to both those questions actually is in the, the little strap line of the Real Bread campaign, which is better for you, your community and the planet. And that absolutely nails the key important things there. It's about individual health due to eating more nutritious, more nutrient-dense food, which is properly fermented to make it more accessible, etc., etc. And it's about making different choices about where that bread is accessible in the community. And you'll find that many people making real bread are not on industrial estates in big uh, plants supplying supermarkets. They're actually right there engaged with their communities. One of many great examples of this is high-rise bakers. They're based in the Gorbals, a neighbourhood on the south side of Glasgow, with a rich history and a lot of economic deprivation. From a community kitchen on the ground floor of a high-rise block of flats, the bakers make and sell slow-fermented bread and rolls, as well as pastries and biscuits. Katrina Milligan is a project worker at Bridging the Gap, the charity that helped to set up the bakery. People are on very limited 
income, so it's quite a big risk to buy something different if you're not sure if your family are going to, to eat it. So early on we did lots of um, tastings and we've cooked for community events, so people, you get to try the bread for free. I think it's really important that the, the bread is able to be enjoyed by people locally because I think it's not a criticism of other community bakers, but I think there are a lot of community bakers where maybe it's people at the margins who bake, but it's people in middle-class communities who eat the bread. Why shouldn't people around here get to eat really good bread? Why shouldn't they have access? And for now at least, giving people access might mean finding different ways of making that bread affordable. The bread all goes out at cost price. We make something on the the sweet goods that we, we sell, that the prices are, are decided by the, the bakers. They, you know, they're local, they know what people are willing to afford. But there's, I think there's always a tricky balance to walk between having something that's affordable for people, or they, they perceive as affordable, but having something that's priced that, that values what you make and also values the work that the bakers in because they're very skilled at what they do and I think it's really important that that's acknowledged, particularly for a group of people who maybe aren't used to being recognised or valued in, in other ways. I think the important thing to discuss is really that food that we eat has a proper value and I think, you know, when we think of value, I don't just think of things like nutrition and flavour, I think of connection and um, so you know, if, if we we go and we, we give that money to the baker for bread that we have a sense of connection to, the value in that is that connection. The value in that is the connection of knowing that, that you're supporting what that person's doing. And that for me is what money's about, is supporting people, supporting initiatives. But then if there are people in need, then they're, they're able to say, look, you know, I'm, I'm in need and I'd like to be supported. And that we can set up ways of doing that as well. Yeah, there are many different ways to serve a community with a really good quality staple food at a price that works for people. But I think that's the key, is to make sure the price works for everybody in the network. If you're connected to everybody in the network, you're more inclined to make it work for everybody in the network because you see the, the struggles. It's great to design the products to suit the communities they need to serve and if that means designing a product that has a low price point or a different model of exchange even because we you know we, we mustn't limit ourselves to only thinking that our current commercial exchange model is the only way to to deal with this but what's absolutely not okay is to bring down your price by taking advantage of other people and impoverishing other people through your system which is what the current cheap food system does it's just taking advantage of others the bakers we've heard from are not motivated by aesthetics, by fashion. They're not on a mission to get everyone eating identical, photogenic, Instagrammable loaves. Their aspiration is for everyone to once again have access to good bread. Bread that's nutritious, flavoursome, environmentally responsible and not full of unnecessary chemicals. Bread that supports all the people involved in its production. And that should be true for bread in all its forms, whether we're talking about tin loaves or burger buns or naans or chapatis or lavash or brioche or pizza or bagels or pretzels or butteries or challah or bannocks or barm cakes or... You get the point. Bread doesn't have to be sort of shaped in any particular way. That's the beauty of bread. Everyone's bread is different and it really is a reflection of their culture 
and the needs of the people that it serves. We are based in an art centre on the edge of a city. The audience that comes here to this building, they maybe have an idea or a preconception of the sort of bakery they want, and it's our job to give them the bakery that they want. You know, we interact with them to deliver what they need, and I think the danger is if you start talking about models, you get into this really negative rhetoric of, well, your model's expensive, your model is elitist, your model only serves this demographic. Yes, it does, because it's small and we serve 70 customers a day and we are suited to being here now. That doesn't mean that you can't have a better food system in every location. And as long as you follow this kind of core principle, I think, rather than model, of cherishing relationships, direct connections, removing commodity from the system at every single level, then there's nothing's going to change. We're just going to end up building the old system back again, but in a really expensive way in a really inefficient way. I think everyone has to have their own food system, you know, everybody has to take part. And there are so many ingredients that need to go into it from like your kind of cultural heritage, the things that you enjoy, the nostalgia you have for certain foods that has to be combined with where you live, the community you serve, the agricultural community that you're able to access and the things that it's possible to grow. And that's a very ecosystem way of looking at it, but it Unfortunately, there's no simple way of modeling it. We can't franchise this, we can't, and that's the whole point, that's where the power is, is because it can't be franchised, it can't be replicated, it can only be, hopefully, something that might inspire people to take back control and feel like they can be part of their food system again and that, that they can build it in their own image or build it how they want to build it. And another great way to help people start to do that? Now, there's one thing I haven't mentioned, is that I'd really like many, many more people to start making their own bread. That's what I enjoy more. It's, it's just making bread and sharing it. There's something really, yeah, there's something really fantastic about it. Regularly, we do baking workshops, so people get to make the kind of bread that we make for sale anyway. And I think that begins to, to help people think differently about about what we make. It makes you part of a story, it makes you part of a, of a network. And as soon as you're in it, you kind of have to care for it. You know, it's, it's you know, human relationships and it's relationships with your environment, with, with whatever's around you, with the, the society around you. So yeah, that's, that's how it starts. So, we've come to the end of the chain, the culmination of the journey. Well, no, not so fast. The next link in the chain is you and me, the consumers, the bread eaters. In fact, this chain analogy that we've been using, it's convenient, but in truth, it's not really accurate. Our bread system, our food system, it's not a linear chain. It's a tangled web, a network, and it's a network we're all part of. And that's why a change in thinking or a change in doing in one place whether that's a farm or a mill or a bakery or a restaurant or a primary school canteen or around a kitchen table, that change has the potential to reverberate right across the web. Hopefully, you've now got a better idea of everything that's gone into the next loaf of bread you buy or bake and an idea of the questions you'd like to ask about it. In the next and final episode, we'll be looking to the future 
we'll be hearing more about some of the initiatives we've encountered over the course of the series, some of the individuals and organizations driving the new grain movement. They'll be sharing their visions for the future of cereal. Cereal is possible thanks to generous support from the Roddick Foundation. Subscribe to Farmerama to hear the rest of the series. You can find us on your favourite podcast app on SoundCloud or at farmerama.co. If you enjoy the series, please spread the word. And if you'd like to support Farmerama, visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama. Serial is produced and edited by me, Katie Revel, with Abby Rose and Joe Barrett. Susie McCarthy and Hannah Sutherland also worked on the series. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. A huge personal thank you to everyone who's contributed to Serial. In this episode, we heard from Chris McCormack, Taylor Farg, Ben McKinnon, Rupert Dunn, Katrina Milligan, Kimberly Bell, and Andrew Whitley. Many other conversations have also helped to shape the series. Thank you to everyone who's helped along the way. <laughs>